right, welcome to Cinema Around the Corner. My name is Ben Wager, and with me is Don Gibson. Hey there. And today we're going to talk about films from the award season of 1984. So these are films that were uh, released in 1983, and uh, the films that we picked uh, have a lot of in commonalities. Uh, they both have three words in their names. And Good they one. both start with the, and and they're both um, ensemble casts. So there's a lot of in commonalities in the structure of, uh, and we'll just get right to it because I'm just kind of dragging this out. But uh, Don is going to open with a little discussion about the right stuff. Go ahead, Don. Yeah, the right stuff. And there are also three words, and they're all monosyllabic. So you, maybe while I'm talking about this one, you can figure out what the other one is. Um, so yeah, the right stuff uh, was quite a you know big sensational film that came out in 80, 84. We're doing right. I think it was eighty um, three. The awards were in 84, 83. Um, it's directed by somebody that I, I don't actually really know. A guy named uh, Phil Kaufman. He did the Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the one from the eighties, and he also did the Unbearable Lightness of Be Being. So those are the other two well known films, and and then this project. Uh, it's the story essentially of of pilots uh, in the uh, Air Force and then the developing NASA program. Uh, so there's sort of a contrast established between breaking the sound barrier. So we, we first feature on Chuck Yeager, who's played by Sam Shepard, and the effort to go Mach 1 to beat the sound barrier. At the time, people thought it might be impossible, that it might be some sort of like magical barrier that could not be broken. And wasn't wasn't the uh, wasn't the film adapted by uh, from a Tom Wolfe book? Yeah, 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 I was getting there. Oh, okay, sorry, I'm sorry. I'll get there. Um, yeah, so then it's the sound barrier, and then the film transfers into the development of the Mercury program, which was the beginning of the space program. Um, and there's a lot of stuff about catching the Russians and and how the Americans tried to catch up. Um, you know, because the Russians were the first to orbit the Earth, first person to send anyone to orbit first to orbit the earth. And so they were constantly trying to catch up. And that's what it goes from America being the leading people in, you know, uh, air travel to breaking the sound barrier, but then they fall behind and try to catch up again with the Mercury program. As you said, Ben, it is based on a book uh, by Tom Wolfe, um, who's, he also wrote a book called The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Tests, um, which, and another one, uh, The Bonfire of the Vanities, that was fictional and Cool, the acid tests in this one are nonfiction. Um, the people would dis dispute the nonfiction part because the astronauts, the reactions. So this covers seven astronauts that were in the Mercury program, and they were very upset with the portrayal of the program. There's a lot of comic scenes in this. There's like, for example, a scene where uh, one of them, I gotta remember, there's so many guys in it. I think it's Maybe Deke Slate, I, I forget. One of the guys, he's waiting to, to be launched. Maybe it's Gus Grissom. No, it's not. Anyway, it was the first guy to get be launched. And... Um, well, that was... That's, that's uh, Shepard. That's Shepard. Alan okay. Shepard. That's Alan Shepard. Thank you. And it's played by Scott Glenn. Actually, the cast and everything's really confusing because Scott Glenn plays Alan Shepard. Ed Harris plays John Glenn. And there's another... Sam Shepard plays Chuck Yeager. And Sam Shepard plays Chuck Yeager. So figure all that out. Uh, so there's a scene where he's sitting in the capsule. He's waiting for like hours and he has to pee. 
And there's this sequence where we see, you know, a guy spraying the tarmac with a hose. Then we see people going to, you know, the, uh, the scientists going to the bathroom, people drinking coffee. There's a whole bunch of like drinking jokes in it and peeing jokes. And then this is, this scene goes on for like four minutes. And he, he finally asks for permission to pee. The scientists don't want him to, and he pees in his, in his, and they're worried about, you know, him electrocuting and blowing the ship up. Of course, none of it happens. So a lot of these scenes, they're sort of comical and um, portrays all the people that worked at NASA as crazy Germans that were just terrible to work with. Yeah, the, the German um, rocket scientists. Yeah, yeah, and they, and they're saying our Germans are better than the Soviet Germans, and there's a lot of jokes in it. They're kind of slapstick oriented, and um, also that aspect, and then also the portrayal of Gus Grissom, who was the second guy to go up. When he landed, there was a problem with the when they when they did these landings, they were in the water, and uh, there was a problem with his escape hatch. It blew while he was in the water and um, and the thing sunk and they didn't actually recover it till like five years ago. So this is, they recovered it like 60 years later. Um, it's portrayed that he panicked and that he was getting claustrophobic and freaking out and hit the escape button. And afterwards it's miserable. You know, the first one that went up, as you said, uh, Alan Shepard, he got, he met Jackie Onassis and the and, and JFK and a huge parade on Broadway and, and, and his wife, his, his wife got a lot of attention and, and she actually is the one who got to spend time with Jackie Onassis. And that was yeah. all the wives. I think, you you know, one of the things that is important is the wives were very much part of the of the PR and the pressure of all this. And, and so there's there's you get that perspective in this film as well. The 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 situation that the wives were going through during during all of this, uh, the space race and, and all the publicity involved. And they, so, and they portrayed all these things. And then, but so the portrayal of, and so then his wife uh, didn't get to do any of those things. She really wanted to meet Jackie. And, and so they really portrayed that aspect of which how let down she was. And Gus Grissom was portrayed as a guy that blew it. And historically, they actually, they, they, re, they realized the most likely thing actually was, it was a faulty mechanism and nothing to do with him. And, uh, but in the film, they, and they, only, uh, they also knew that at the time. And the sad thing is Gris, Gris Grissom, he was killed in an Apollo launch several years later and he couldn't fight like the betrayal. His, his family would have probably fought the portrayal of him. All the other astronauts did. So as entertaining and as it's, it's a very dynamic and, and fun film, you know, as, as Ben said, it's, a, it's quite a large cast. It's a little bit, the nonfiction part, it, there's some really great, amazing footage of all the, all the blown launches and there's some really good footage they have and it's quite dramatic when they're breaking the sound barrier or re-entering the atmosphere it's but it's one thing about it it's extraordinarily long it's like three hours and 15 minutes and i guess you have to be if uh, if it's an epic so, yeah well, i mean they, they cover a lot of, of information i mean they you know starting with the uh the jet propulsion experiments with with the fighter jets in early 50s and, you know, and then many of the uh, Mercury pilots were also in, they were also pilots in the military. And some of them had been test pilots with Jaeger at airfield where they were doing a lot of the speed tests for uh, breaking the sound barrier and things of that nature. And there was a lot of competition there and a lot of like, you know, macho uh, pilot things going on. And they had a bar that they all went to and all the dead guys pictures were on the wall. 
and there was you know happy the, bottom riding club yeah the happy bar. bottom riding club and then and at one point that the, the that bar burns down and they don't explain that at all it just kind of happens and and you don't really get an understanding it seemed like it was some kind of uh you know message that they were putting in the film about the evolution from the ground pilot you know focus to the, the to the astronauts and 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 like yeah. this was a kind of a closing a closing moment and you know jaeger was kind of pushed out of the opportunity to be an astronaut because he didn't have a college education and i ironically you know because the right stuff came from something he would say right you know they gotta have the right stuff to do this but then he got him and some of the other better pilots who had who were not college educated got pushed out of the opportunity to evolve into the astronaut program and and the interesting thing of course is they don't portray that historically that's what happened in the film they're they're like he's like as you said it's a difference between these kinds of pilots which are the cowboy macho kind of guys that are like, you know, they, they don't drink water, they just drink whiskey and ride horses. And then these other guys, they, they're pilots, but they're portrayed as guinea pigs. And there's a big, you know, comparison between um, them and chimpanzees. And, you know, there's a whole uh, fight about putting a window into the capsule. And, and so there's that Chuck Yeager in the film is portrayed as hell no, I would never do that stuff. But as you said, he couldn't even get in the program. Um, and also that club, as you said, is the symbol of the end of this, this era of the cowboy, you know, pilot. And it's interesting that this, this club was real. Um, it was run by a female, an aviatrix, um, female pilot. Her name was Poncho Barnes. And it turned out that the reason, they don't know why the club burned down, but they, th they think it is. So she had her bar right beside the landing strip. It was, you know, a place where they all went and they were expanding their strip. And, but she had a, the rights to the land and the, 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 the Air Force was fighting with her and they actually accused her of running a house of ill repute to try to destroy her. None of it was true. And it mysteriously burned down one night pointing, you know, we're thinking it was done, you know, deviously to force her out of business is what happened historically. But I think you're right. It's this metaphoric thing that, that happens in the film. Just to be fair, the film doesn't reflect that theory at all. There's none of that's connected. No, it's not in the film they, at all. They don't go that far. No, but there's like three, it's interesting how they portray Nassau. And it's one thing, one connection that we have in uh, in both films is we have an actor in, in both films, Jeff Goldblum. And he's a more featured actor in the other film, which we haven't named yet. Um, but he's he represents the bureaucrats in this. And he just comes in and they, they just see, they just want a guy that follows the rules. And Jeff Goldblum is this guy that keeps coming in this boardroom with politicians and saying, hey, they launched Sputnik and they all say, we know. So he's this sort of comic relief guy that really treats the astronauts as uh, he, he's they, like they, a bureaucrat. He, his character in his character and the other the other guy Harry Shearer who plays the other they they don't even yeah. have names they're called the recruiters in the original script they don't even have scripted uh, word all of that was improvised um, and they're just kind of used as the transition between scenes I think more they than are. anything but they they become you know they're very impactful in their little moments in the in the in the films. And you can see, you know, there's definitely some comic relief in how they play the roles. And it definitely was on the light side of pen, pencil pushing nerds exactly. and, you know, interacting with the, the mighty test pilots and, and astronauts and things of that nature. So you kind of see that this comic relief that they kind of drop into the 
to the movie a little bit, and and it, and it yeah. was very effective. I thought they, you know, you do remember them. They they have memorable memorable roles. And and another uh, smaller comic role we only see her for about fifteen minutes is a, a Jane Dornaker, and she plays this nurse that basically taunts and and terrorizes the um, the astronauts and all the tests they have to do. And there's this whole long sequence about how they have to, uh, you know, put sperm into a jar, and and so then there's, there's all these sort of like joke Dennis Quaid jokes with her all the time and then she's got to interview the the wife and and she's quite a character and uh, she's like one of the more memorable people for me I really liked her portrayal of this kind of you know odd nurse that was basically mentally torturing the astronauts and another scene I really liked in the film which is so odd really uh, Glenn who is played by Ed Harris when he's orbiting the earth they need to have uh, someone in the uh in a, in a radio station in Australia to maintain the signal. And so they go to this little shack in the middle of, of the outback in Australia. And there's all these Aborigine, Aborigines there that are talking about they, they've all been to space. And, and then when Glenn's flying over, all these sparks come up in the, uh, in the atmosphere. And meanwhile, the Aborigines have a huge fire. They're doing this ceremony or something. Yeah, it's some sort of like it's all this it's, it's it's all very abstract and it's a sort of spiritual connection between what Glenn is doing and what the aboriginals are doing and how they're connected and pretty close to the climax of the film and it's the successful orbiting of the Glenn achieves so Yeah, and Glenn and, and to be honest with you there there is some it's implied that there are some problems with the the heat shield of the of the yep. capsule and you know there's a connection that maybe the the spiritual medicine men of the aboriginals are doing these little, uh, uh, you know, rituals at night and, and maybe they're on hallucinogenics. It's kind of implied, you know, yeah. and they're, and you know, they, the sparks from this massive bonfire somehow go out into, into space and kind of envelop the capsule and John Glenn actually exactly. reports seeing, and this is true yeah. that he saw these, you know, sparks around the capsule and it seemed like there were fireflies and and it, it's reported and it, it also happened I, I believe with cooper as well he also reported but it turns out that the scientific explanation of those um sparks were the apps outside of the capsule some of the material was uh uh kind of coming off and the reflection of off those little pieces of material represented that and cooper when he tapped the capsule could actually increase the amount of material coming off the capsule you know this was definitely part of the fictional story of the film but it was entertaining yeah. it was a very entertaining yeah. yeah it's very entertaining it had a 27 million dollar budget and it only made 20 i was quite surprised to read that because i remember when it was out it was very it was hyped everywhere and i saw it and everyone was like have you seen the right stuff so it didn't do that well at the box office. You know, interestingly enough, a lot of people, when they kind of surveyed audiences, a lot of people weren't interested in seeing it because it was something that they felt was historical and that they could just go and, and see it whenever they wanted to. So it wasn't, you know, it was a, when they knew that VHS was coming out and and rent the rental market was starting up a little bit. And so I think that impacted it a little bit. It didn't have that new vibrant entertainment based story. People thought of it more as almost like a documentary. Yeah. And which is odd because this film is obviously much better on a bigger screen. They have, there's a lot of really good, you know, space flight footage and, the, and then they break in the sound barrier and it's, it's much better in a, with a bigger screen. The, another thing I want to share with you is I do have a little bit of a personal connection to this film because my father, uh, 
lived in San Francisco and he lives in, in Marin County now, which is just north of San Francisco. But in the eighties, he lived in San Francisco and he rented an apartment from a guy who owned a house. And the guy who owned the house was actually, his name was Andy Whiskus. And he was one of the uh, sound re-recording mixers on the right stuff. And so, wow. uh, yeah, yeah. And so he, he was, and they won an Oscar. The, the, the sound mixers won an Oscar for this. And so he, there were like four guys that could be listed for the Oscars, right? Uh, and he was the fifth guy. So, he, so he, his group won the Oscar, but he didn't get, you know, when you look at the Oscar, his name is not part of the, wow. the group that won the Oscar, but he was on the team of the guys who won that Oscar, Harry Thom, right. uh, T-H-O, Henry Thom, T-H-O-M. He's one of the, the guys that he worked with that, that won the Oscar for sound re-recording. But I remember my father showing me that film and telling me about that. And at the time that I watched the film, I thought it was okay, you know, but when you were that young, you you know, you want more flash them up and bang. And, you know, so it wasn't as interesting to me, but I did always remember that this guy won the Oscar. And, and so that connection of knowing that our, you know, my father's landlord was this guy that was such an important part of this film always brought a, you know, a strong connection to, to whenever I've seen it. And I've seen maybe the film three times. It's not, it's not like something I watch every few years, but I've probably in four decades, I've seen it three times, you know, or yeah. three decades. Well, and one thing I would say, I mean, the film was nominated for, Best Picture, and it had eight nominee, nominations. Um, and it won, I think, three awards for sound. And I, I think the sound is great. I mean, yeah, they, no, the sound is fantastic. The sound, especially when I, I mentioned before of coming back uh, with the heat shield, coming back into the atmosphere. And then also um, when Jaeger's trying to break the sound barriers and he flies another plane at the end. And, and the sound in those sequences are, are really well done. Obviously we have, you know, it's, this is 40 years ago, so uh, technologies have advanced, but I think those elements actually hold up pretty well. Oh yeah, and and when they did those, they went to uh, they had a, a bomb exploded purposely to replicate the exploding aircraft sound. I mean, they they did a lot yeah. of um, on site real sound effects that they simulated that weren't digital. I mean, they they went to these places and they were at some risk because when you're exploding a bomb and you're trying to record it, you know, you've got to make sure you're in the right distance and all. So I mean, they really and people, you know, this movie people died making this movie. There was a parachute accident where a chute didn't open and a guy died they didn't use any of that footage because they were all and another guy lost his ear in an accident so i mean there was a lot of risk involved in this movie a lot of the actors men who played the main characters they really they really kind of took in those characters and, and they were they were you know strutting their stuff and acting all macho and drinking at night heavily and doing stupid stuff in the hotels and in the places that they were staying and so they you know and i think you know, you mentioned that some of the pushback against this film. I did read that uh, John Glenn, who at the time that this film was m being made, was a, was a U.S. senator, a very powerful man in our government. And he actually told NASA to block access to NASA to the, the filmmakers unsuccessfully. They were able to override him. They were public U.S. citizens and they had a right to access and, and people didn't want to make it a a big deal but he he did attempt because he did not like the way he was portrayed in the film much like yeah. some of the other actors you know he did use his power um he was very much against this film and he did try to use as much of his power as possible to block the successful filming of this using any kind of government property the last thing i want to say about this film you know i told you i had a strong connection to this film because of that connection my father had with this the the sound guy but also 
this film reminds me when I watch this film, it always reminds me of my grandfather because he is that generation of, you know, World War II veteran. And, and he's, you know, he passed away in the nineties, but that kind of tough guy, you know, have to have this kind of persona all the time. Uh, and he was very, you know, a good, great grandfather, but, you know, he had that kind of that vibe, even though he was like an everyday guy, he very much had the same kind of persona about life and how things should be applied uh, that these guys had as astronauts, even though my, you know, my grandfather was, when I knew him, he was basically a retired construction worker who would, you know, had a lot of land and was successful. His, his whole vibe very much had that same kind of generational, you know, as, as an ex-naval uh, veteran. Yeah, definitely Chuck Yeager's portrayal uh, by Sam Shepard is, embodies that spirit. Um, he's he's that definitely the feature piece of the, of the, uh, of the film. And Chuck Yeager, I was looking all these people up. Chuck Yeager just died like last year. Yeah, a couple of these guys died fairly recently, like in the last couple yeah. of years. You know, he was around forever. So, and John Glenn, uh, even John Glenn died like in 2015 or something. You know. Yeah, it's. I, I think it's a. You know, it's certainly a, an entertaining film. If anyone's seen the film later, uh, Apollo 13, there's a similar feeling to it. It's all about what's what happens out of the um, the NASA program, and it's very detail oriented. This one, as I said, it's got this whole thing, all these gags, which I don't really quite understand why they're there. The thing that we haven't touched on is the role of the women in the film. All of the women in the film are basically the wives of the test pilots or the astronaut, except for themselves. They don't have much of a support network because they're all just looking at them as vehicles for increasing the publicity for the program. And that's what they were used for. And one of the scenes that I thought was quite, and I don't know if it's true or not, probably it's true because it was a powerful scene is John Glenn, his wife uh, is in the house with supported by the other wives because when it was John Glenn's turn. And so they all go to the house of the wife whose husband could be near death situation to be supportive. And Lyndon Johnson, the vice president is out in a limousine outside and all the, and the press in this movie are portrayed as just aggressive and sensitive uh, yep. assholes basically. And they'll do whatever they can to, you know, scoop the story and get in and they'll knock on windows and open doors, even if they're, they're just kind of almost portrayed as monsters. Paparazzi. And, yeah. John Glenn's wife, Annie, who, by the way, is played by Mary Jo DeChannel. If you know Zoe DeChannel, the, the actress, this is her mother. And the cinematographer was her father, Caleb DeChannel. There's a lot of familial connections to different people in this. But she plays Annie Glenn. And Annie Glenn had a horrible stutter. In this film, you, you get the sense of how important it was for John Glenn to protect his wife's image because she was very sensitive about this. She did not want to do publicity. She The other wives, it took them a while to even get to know her because she was so uh, reserved because of her stutter. And so Lyndon Johnson's demanding to have a press interview with her in front of the cameras. She's terrified and frightened and doesn't want to do it. And they call John Glenn, you know, at the uh, NASA Space Center and they tell him to tell her to do the interview. He gets on the phone and all the other men, Mercury astronauts are around him. And he says, honey, while the space administrator guy is like, just do it, tell her. And he just says, you don't have to do it. Just don't worry about it. You don't have to do it and hangs up. And the guy says to him, you know what? You, if you don't play ball, you know, we're going to change the order. And, and the other guys all step and go, yeah, who are you going to get if it's not him? And then he realizes he loses control of the situation because they've all, you know, they've all kind of united to support John Glenn. And I thought that was a really powerful scene. And it showed the loyalty that John Glenn had to his wife and the importance of that dynamic of the relationships between the astronaut and their wives. Because you see 
a lot of that in the film, especially with John Glenn and Annie Glenn, but you also see it with Dennis Quaid and his wife, and you see it a little bit with Chuck Yeager and his wife. Uh, and then there's a, a part of the Gus Grissom uh, character and his wife being kind of shamed because of the accident with the um, capsule door and the capsule sinking and how she loses face amongst every all the other wives because of what happened with him. And the pressure he felt from his wife that he actually cries in front of her because he's so frustrated that that happened. You know, you see all this. I admired that part of this movie because that wasn't something that they necessarily, you know, it could have easily just not been in the movie and people would not have known that there was this relationship between them. And so that they had this kind of feminist point of view in the movie, I think actually strengthened a lot of the perception of the holistic nature of, of how their lives were impacted by um, you know, being in these types of programs and seeing that wife's point of view. And I think it was a little bit ahead of its time because, you know, you didn't really see that a lot in the 80s and, and movies previous to that. So I thought that was a real strength to the movie. Uh, I agree that one thing about the stutter, though, is John Glenn was very upset about how she was portrayed because he said that the stutter was never as bad as, as they made it. But uh, the scene, of course, does, as you said, emphasize the, the strength of the relationship between the two of them all right we should we should carry on because uh, we've done a lot of right stuff and we should move on well, to it's a great it's a great film but you know what we should move on to the next three word film that starts with the and is monosyllabic that is the big chill uh a movie that was also filmed in 1983 directed by lawrence caston written by Lawrence Kasdan and Barbara Benedict, and also an amazing ensemble cast. I mean, some people would say this particular ensemble cast is one of the most memorable ensemble casts of the of the last 50 years. I mean, you, people would put it up there with Ocean's Eleven, Tom Berenger, Glenn Close, Jeff Goldblum, who was in um, The Right Stuff, William Hurt, Kevin Klein, Mary Kate Blaze, Meg Tilly, and Joe Beth Wills Williams. And also, there's a corpse in this film that we never see who that is, but it actually, the corpse is also Kevin Costner. So he was also kind of represented in this film. This film is a story about a weekend where one of their friends dies, who's played by Kevin Costner, but is never, they actually cut out all the scenes where actually Kevin Costner is in the movie because they built his character's reputation up so much that they felt that showing him on, on in the film would have actually let down kind of the, the whole film spirit because of, of their, the, so much of the discussion of the film is based off this character's decision. He commits suicide and kind of that starts the whole film is this weekend where they, they come together and they're all college friends from the 60s. This film is from the early 80s. So they're all now in their 30s and they're, they've kind of, you know, their lives have separated for the most part. And, and, and some of them have become wealthy and some of them have become um, famous and some of them are, um, you know, well-established in their careers. And some of them are just kind of, you know, on the edge or the fringe. And so there's, they all have, but they all have that common connection of going to the University of Michigan and being very close friends. This relationship that you see in this film is all about the kind of the, the strengths and the dynamics that they had and being brought together because of the death of their friend, Alex. And this weekend kind of evolves a lot of history that, uh, you see between these people and their discussions of why they separated and the impact, how they could have maybe stopped this guy from committing suicide or what was the, the motivation for him or understanding. And then also just kind of, you know, looking at the world the way they did from the lens of their college lives where they were anti-establishment and anti-wealth and, and, you know, 
you know, revolutionaries in their own kind of way of thinking to they all sold out. They all sold out and became like these, you know, pseudo successful to uber successful people in lives. One of them owns a, you know, a shoe store that has 50 uh, outlets. Another one is a famous like a Magnum P.I. kind of Tom Selleck TV star. And then another one is a, a rag journalist for People magazine. And then there, one's a lawyer who becomes very successful. And, but then there and then there's a guy who played by William Hurt, who was a you know radio psychologist who basically now is a drug dealer you know on the fringe of of the law in, in, as portrayed and so you see these dynamics of all these characters you know interacting in this film over the skin and there's a lot of powerful uh, monologues there's a lot of powerful interaction between each of the characters or in as the ensemble you know after having dinner they smoke a lot of weed they drink a lot together and they just kind of have some interesting philosophical discussions and there's a lot of little subplots about you know um, their relationships and their previous relationships and their yearnings and passions for each other and some manipulations that are happening and the but the dynamic between the ensemble cast is really strong. I mean, you really feel that. And one of the reasons that that might have happened was because you know Lawrence Kasdan before the night before they actually started the day first day of shooting, which this film was shot in South Carolina at a beautiful old mansion. Lawrence Kasdan had all of the character the cast dinner together in character and improv for five hours through a dinner and an after dinner session, and they and then the next morning they started the shooting. A lot of uh, the authenticness of them kind of interacting through the rehearsals and then through this last moment where they had this five hour improv really, I think, strengthened the relationships because all of these people were about the same age, were in the same points in their career. By far, one of the strongest things you see in this film that impacts you is the, the really authentic relationships between the characters. There's not a huge amount of storyline to this except for those interactions and, and them all being connected in the commonality. The film kind of goes through this weekend and you know all these trials and tribulations that they go through in, in amongst these relationships, but it, it just kind of, you know, it's a snapshot. And then at the end of the weekend, they all kind of go back their separate ways and uh, walk away from this moment in time and that and that kind of ends the film um another thing that's very impactful to me in this film is the music the soundtrack of this film to me for me personally introduced me because at the time that it came out i was probably a teenager middle school high school teenager when it actually came out a lot of the soundtrack i really connected to a lot when i was in college so i listened to this constantly i mean i really loved this music the r&b and the rock and roll a lot you know because my family my mother kind of raised me with folk music and so I didn't get a lot of exposure to different types of music but this soundtrack really kind of connected me to a lot of the classic R&B and rock and roll that still even today I listen to constantly and it was you know probably instilled a lot by the soundtrack of, because this was a huge soundtrack it was very popular wove into the storyline very well yeah I, I agree um, I think that the, the strongest aspect of this film is definitely the soundtrack um, also, like the juxtaposition of songs and the images. So like the opening is I Heard It Through the Grapevine. And that's when, by Marvin Gaye, we're seeing the body being dressed for the funeral. It's, so it's a really nice, you know, the music's great, as you said, but it also works really well with the images. Like, you know, all these people heard has been established. These people were really close friends 15 years before, and they've all drifted apart. And this notion of this is the thing, you heard it through the grapevine, they all came back together, is a really, uh, it's the, basically the opening montage of starting the, the film. 
And they also do another really good one with you can't always get what you want. Oh, um, yeah. once, again, once again, so you know, with these, this is, it's an interesting title too. You talked about the right stuff being a good title for the last film. And the big chill is really interesting too, because this is the generation that they thought they were going to change the world. And, and then, you know, this is a realization they, they come to, you know, 15 years later that they've really failed. I mean, as you said, they might be successful. You know, one guy is, is like Mag Tom Berger plays like a Magnum PI kind of guy. And he's been very successful at it, but he's definitely not living the life that he wanted to live. He's unhappy, bordering on alcoholic. So there, but I, it's, it's like he's the one guy that really likes people, and he, he's actually got a sort of a nice, genuine spirit. The John Hurt character, as you said, is the, the drug addict, and he's had some William, sort of William Hurt. William Hurt. Oh, what did I say? Yeah, John. William Hurt. Oh, John Hurt. Yeah, not John Hurt. Uh, William Hurt, and his his character. It's interesting. It's a little bit tiresome after a while because he's just so bitter and he has nothing. He already knows how terrible the world is. And but anyway, all, all these people did have aspirations, you know. And they and this does represent the realization that you know all these things we really thought we were going to be um, were really not those things at all. And the one guy that sort of I guess was like that we think maybe a bit was the character that uh, Kevin Costner played because he was sort of this James Dean kind of guy that. Uh, Became a social um, worker. Became, yeah, and he was doing the right things, but then he, you know, he, kill, he kills himself. And the relationship, the one, as you said, this this ensemble cast, Meg Tilly was is a new person, and she's much younger than everybody else because she's playing this young, you know, basically twenty year old girlfriend. And obviously, she's got a very different, uh, you know, background. She doesn't have this abandoned uh, aspect in her life, and and, they, and they're all trying to figure her out, and she seems to be emotionless. We don't really. At, at, that's part, that's the perception of the other characters because they're all basically maybe 15 years older than she is. And she's got a very different perspective because she's a 20 year old and she doesn't have these abandoned ideas. She's just trying to figure her life out. It is interesting though, how she doesn't seem to be grieving the loss of her boyfriend who she's been with uh, for four months. And the other character that I think is really interesting in portrayal is the Jeff Goldblum character who plays the people reporter and he's, superficially is always getting scoops and he's always, you know, manipulating, you know, for pop media. Uh, but boy, do they treat him roughly in this, in this film. He's just this guy that, you know, will have sex with anybody, will do anything. You don't, he, he wants to be, they're implying he'll have sex with this Meg Tilly character that just lost her, her boyfriend. And, and it's interesting because I don't, the way he talks and he actually confesses the end that he's really disappointed in his life just like everyone else is. And I think his character is, un I, I would, would love to have seen much more from him in it. He does get the last line in the film, but I was intrigued by how he was sort of seen as the one guy that was lower than everyone else. But I was like, wait a minute, is he really? The interesting thing was he wasn't even invited to stay. You know, he crashed. And part of it was because he said he had some interview in Dallas that next night, but he, but then he was able to push the schedule around and stay and there was a lot of resistance between some of the characters in him because they felt, you know, he wasn't trustworthy. Uh, Tom Berger's character was implied that, you know, he he had People Magazine had did something on his divorce and, and maybe he had leaked the information or something like that. And so, yeah, he was kind of considered not as upstanding as some of the other people in the in the group. Although once he was there, once he was there, they seemed to you know basically accept him again for who he was. You know. Yeah, and, and so one scene that I really liked, I don't want to do any great, you know, reveals, but the Joe Beth Williams character, she had this, this, you know, simmering desire to connect with the Tom Berenger character. 
and they always wanted to and in college they never did and now like she's in a she says essentially a loveless marriage and he's now divorced and there's this thing that goes on between them constantly um uh, through the film is like you know they're they're she's constantly after him she just you know like almost like a schoolgirl crush and uh, anyway yeah so when they finally do it and they have this kind of animalistic sex just out like in the back in with their coats on it certainly is not a beautiful you know loving moment it's just you know doing the deed as they say and then the next day when she's talking to him everything's changed it's just like hey you'll give a boy give my boys uh, a tour of the studio and it's like this whole and it's that's for me it's kind of a encapsulates that the idea in the film of the all these aspirations and things they desire and you know bigger things like you know saving the world and being good to people and forming nonprofits and things like that and then when and when they actually live their life that they don't do that and it's very similar here with her relation with Berenger she just has this idolization and then they finally go through with it and then the next day it's just like yeah all right see you later yeah and the interesting thing is it's, it was a reverse moment because you know normally him being the the big movie star film star tv star he would get to you know go through the process of kind of using somebody because of their attraction to him or of his fame or whatever but he actually gets switched into that role because she he I mean he had feelings for her I mean you see it throughout there's definitely a mutual attraction that they have but then afterwards he was thinking that this was going to be a, a bigger thing and she's the one who's like yeah we just did this thing and i'm now re-establishing the boundaries and you know it's going to be like this and he kind of sitting there kind of feeling let down and used in in this moment and so you kind of see a reverse kind yeah, of yeah. situation that he's probably not normally used to being in one of the things that a lot of historians say about this film is is that you know, it really kind of celebrates the success and greed that this, this generation's become after that 60s thing. And that's something that I never connected to uh, being, you know, the Gen X. We never had this kind of riff revolution, whatever, you know. You know, I was raised under the Reagan umbrella, basically of the 80s. And it was just this kind of very, just very conformist view of life. And, you know, by the time I got into my uh, 20s and the 90s, you know, things were shooting up and it, it was good then, you know, and, and, you know, you moved into your careers and then the internet happened and there was all this other stuff. And then not until like, you know, 9-11 where everybody was impacted was my life that, uh, you know, there wasn't a lot of revolution or anything of that nature. And so this whole way that these people looked at, oh, when I was in college, you know, it, it was all stable. And, and so like m most of my you know, young adult life to, you know, my mid adult life was pretty, it was a pretty stable life. And and so this whole thing that they were, I never connected to, no matter what point in my life that I've watched this film, I've never had that thing that they always talk about, oh, we could have changed the world. I just never felt like my generation, we're just like, we want to keep the world stable and just kind of the way it is, you know, that's kind of you know, like the role that we've been. And even now when we look at millennials and baby boomers and we're this group in between, you know, we're just kind of like the, the the stable core of, of like our society right now in, in, in our role, because, you know, it's different situations with different generations, but our generation, we were just kind of low key and, and keep it moving. Yeah, well, I agree that this film does look back at that era. And, and as you say, that era definitely, I mean, even today, people, you know, the the trial of the Chicago 7 is a, is a big film this Oscar season. And it's it's about that era of, of people fighting the system like Abby Hoffman and Tom Hayden and 
And, you know, even the leaders, uh, Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy, and there's a lot of people that were leading and, and people believe that the world's going to change. A lot of bad things happened in, in that time and the world did not change. And then all the people that were part of it, um, they didn't do all the changes they, they thought that were going to happen. It's interesting you put in the, in the political context because the, the arrival of Joe Biden now is such an extraordinarily odd moment because Biden's been around forever for 40 years in politics. And yeah, he's just, he's introducing all these changes that they're like, my goodness, this guy is really doing some things that I don't know if it's going to work and if it's all going to happen, but he's actually kind of introducing some, I don't know, revolutionary, but the kind of stuff that Robert Kennedy and King would have introduced this kind of stuff. And, and this is guy that's been around forever. And maybe Biden is finally the realization of this generation that failed and he's going to, finally make something happen i guess well because that is his well, generation we'll see. Isn't we'll it? see you know we'll see we'll what see. Happens, you know yeah. but overall you know i definitely enjoyed the i enjoyed the movie it really connected me to a lot about you know my moments when i've seen the movie before and just kind of yeah, the feel good association of of the music definitely i still enjoyed watching this movie even though i've seen it you know dozens of times and and there's just a real connection to you know watching those people's careers and well you know i was i gotta admit i hadn't seen it for years i was a little bit disappointed because i thought the dialogue was a little bit sharper and the characters were a little bit more interesting there's a a point i was like this is a little bit beaten down and i it wasn't quite what i wanted the music and the visuals work really well but my wife had never seen it and she actually really enjoyed it and thought it was actually pretty solid. And it's interesting someone seeing this film for the first time, you know, 40 years after it's made. Um, and she thought it was actually worked pretty well. So I think it's, it's definitely a, a film worth seeing because as, as you said, the music, the ensemble, the, the message is actually kind of interesting. The reflection of a generation that failed and looking back at their lives is, as you know, I think we kind of brought up, it's even relevant to your life, even if you're from a different generation, it makes you think about those things. All right. I think we brought up some very good points about these movies um, and we shared some uh, interesting perspectives this time around. We are going to move on and we're going to take a, uh, probably a couple more years uh, through our, our little best picture nominee who didn't win exploration. And so next time we'll be doing the films of the awards season of 1985. And we all invite you to come back around and listen to cinema around the corner. So we'll see you next or talk to you next time. See you later.